We're going to get back into Genesis this morning. Um, but before we do, would you open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4? 1 Timothy chapter 4. We spent four weeks looking at biblical prophecy and what it has to say about the latter days, the days that we're living in. And uh, we could continue. I know that. In fact, we could just spend the rest of our lives looking at prophecy in the latter days and the days that we're in. And we will come back to it. We will talk more about it, absolutely. It's going to come up over and over. And you can, you can bank on that one. But while we've taken a brief hiatus from Genesis to do this, there are reasons for it. Um, I know that, that on occasion people can think that you know, when you're talking about prophecy, it's just about trying to hype up your church or trying to get people to notice that you're around, and, and that has nothing to do with it. The truth is that we're commanded to be aware of the times that we live in, to keep our eyes wide open. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, The Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to the deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by the means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, who forbid marriage and abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is to be received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. And Paul says, in pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. Now, I love that line, constantly nourished. On, I guess it was Wednesday night of this week, we went to Baccalaureate in Anacortes, and there were several students who spoke and shared very openly and, and, and bravely and wonderfully about their faith in Jesus. And one of the students got up and shared a verse I had never heard before, but I immediately wrote down, and I loved it. It's Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 16. Jeremiah verse, chapter 15, verse 16 tells us, if I can recall it correctly, Your word was found, and I ate it. Your words were found, and I ate them, and they became for me a joy, a delight for my heart. To be nourished is to be nourished on the word of God, to have it get inside of you. And what's amazing about the Word and about the Bible and about the study, even as we're doing this morning, is when it gets inside of us, it does bring us joy. It brings us a great delight. And so not only do we want to talk about prophetic things, but we want to make sure that we're just staying in the Word and listening to what the Word has to say, what God, by His Spirit, has to say through the Word. And by the way, real quickly, before I go on... I mentioned two weeks ago, and some of you caught me on this, we were talking about the, the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream about, and we got down to the, to the feet, mixed of clay and iron, and we talked about how it was a picture of the rising Roman Empire, the new Roman Empire, and I pointed out many things that show us that indicate that it's probably Europe, the European Union as it's rising. And I made very careful mention in that message about the ten toes. I said, how many toes are there on the feet? And you all said, ten. I said, right. And then it never came back to it again. And I had several people go, so what about the toes? What's the deal with the toes? Are you saying that there are going to be like ten nations or whatever? Let me just give you a, a review on that because I totally forgot to talk about it. The ten toes, there were people who thought back prior to the 80s that there were going to be ten nations. In fact, when the European Union first began, they called themselves, nicknamed themselves the Big Ten. 
Because they wanted to be a confederation of ten nations. That was their goal. Well, now, as we talked about two weeks ago, they have 25 nations. So what's the deal with that? And there were people, when they heard the Big Ten thing and they were looking and they saw that there were actually ten nations in the European Union, they said, oh, wow, that's it. That's it. Here it is. We're seeing it right in front of us. And then 15 came along. And then it was 20 and 25. Well, the answer to that is very simply this. Biblical prophecy, as I've said many times before, is not what might happen, it's what will happen. And so all we can do is surmise that ultimately the rising Roman Empire that once again returns will have a breakdown of ten nations within it, or maybe even ten kings who oversee that nation. Okay? So I know that clears it up for some of you. For others who are here for the first time, you're going... Okay, great. Let's just move on. Leave that one alone. I want to read one more verse here. 1 Timothy chapter 4, in verse 7. Paul says, But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. No offense, this was Paul's writing. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Now listen, it's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. For bodily discipline is only of a little profit. Now that my gym membership has lapsed a year, that's good news. It's profitable for only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Now it's that time of year again, you wouldn't know it by the weather today, but the sun's coming out and the bathing suits are coming out of the closets and out of the drawers and people are starting to stand and look in the mirror and say, oh no, when did that happen? Christmas was so good, but that was a while ago, I thought it'd be gone by now, you know? And we, we start to do all this stuff, we're worried about the way, I have some, a couple of pieces of really good news for you. Number one, and it goes back actually to what Mark Harris talked about last week, Einstein's theory of relativity. There's some good news in that if you're a little concerned about weight. And here it is. The theory of relativity tells us that as speed, as things speed up, time slows down, but at, at the same time, matter expands. Okay? So, which is why we can't jump in a rocket ship and go the speed of light, because if we did, we would literally explode. But all you have to say if you're having a little concern about your weight is, look, I'm just moving faster than you are. And truly, if Einstein's correct and matter expands as you go faster, then all you really need to do is slow down and you will lose weight. Well, that's Einstein's theory. Paul has a theory of spirituality. Not a theory of relativity, a, spirit, a theory of spirituality. And that is this. And it's worth writing down and it's worth paying attention to. Salvation is a workout. Salvation is a workout. Now that thought may fly in the face of the idea of grace, or it may seem to at first. Salvation is a workout. Oh, I thought salvation was free. It is. But it's also a workout. Listen to Paul's words. We looked at this a week ago Wednesday. I want to spend a little more time on it this morning. Philippians chapter 2 verse 12. Paul writes the following. Philippians 2.12. He says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now that verse used to really confuse me because I could contrast it with Ephesians 2.8 where Paul says, It's by grace you've been saved, through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It's the grace of God so that no one can boast. 
It's by grace I'm saved, but Paul says, work out your salvation. Which is it? Do I have to work it out, or am I just saved by grace? I want us to consider, as we get back to Genesis this morning, and we're going to see it in our story today, the idea of salvation as a workout, that the Bible talks about, teaches, shows us both grace and righteousness. Both faith and works. It's about both what God does and about what we must do. Now stick with me on this. It's incredibly important. This verse alone that Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, if it's understood correctly, I believe will put to rest this argument in the church today between faith only and works righteousness. That all I have to do is believe and that's it and I'm good to go or I've got to work and save myself. And that's the debate that kind of goes back and forth and people go one way or the other. And Paul answers the question in the very wording of this verse. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. First of all, understand that Paul is referring to something you already have. When he says work out your salvation, how can you work out something that doesn't belong to you? How can I work out a muscle that isn't already present in my body? He's talking about something you have. Once you have salvation, then you can work it out. If you don't have salvation, you can't work it out. Work out what you have. Work out your salvation. But the word work here is very interesting to me. It means literally to be intensely engaged in. To be intensely engaged in. Paul is saying be intensely engaged in the process of your salvation. Be involved. Take ownership of it. Claim it. God invites us to be engaged in the process, working out in our salvation. We have no, no problem understanding the phrase workout in our culture today. I went to the gym. I had a workout. I spend time in the scripture studying. It can be a workout. I spend all afternoon in prayer. I was working out. I was involved in a labor of love. It's a workout. Engage in the process. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And this is exactly what God does with a man named Jacob. Flip in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 30. Genesis chapter 30. And while you're flipping there, consider this. God does an amazing thing in Jacob's life. First he comes along and he saves him. Genesis chapter 28 has the story of Jacob's salvation. All Jacob does is go to sleep. He lies down, his head on a rock, and God shows up to him in a dream. And there's a ladder coming up and down out of heaven, which Jesus will later tell us is him. The ladder is the Lord. And Jacob sees this, has this dream of angels ascending and descending on the ladder, and God comes to him and offers him a relationship. And offers him connection. And Jacob, who, whose name means heel catcher or supplanter, because he has stolen his brother's blessing, he has tricked him out of his birthright. Jacob, this black sheep of the family, so to speak, gets saved. And that's what God does. First he saves Jacob. But then he begins to work out Jacob. First he's saved, and then God summons him to be involved, to be engaged in a workout. God never stops at salvation. Folks, salvation is only the beginning. Before we read this story this morning, let's pray together. Father, we need your wisdom, we need your spirit, and we pray for it right now. We ask you, Lord, that you'll open our eyes to understand this process that you have called us to. The Father, if there's any of us here today, and, and I would imagine most of us, if we're not in this place, have been there. If there are any of us, Lord, who are slack in the process, 
who consider ourselves saved, but we're just sitting back in it. We're trying to move slower. We're not speeding up towards you. We're not concerned about spiritual things. Father, we all have those valleys and those lows in our lives. Would you shake us out of it this morning? Wake us up, Lord. Father, it is my deepest prayer that the bridge be a place that is so alive with your Holy Spirit and so active in working out salvation that the people are being saved right and left. We know that's your heart, Father, and it's our desire as a body of believers here. May this fellowship be a place that's more like a gym than it is a barn. Jesus, help us understand your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, Genesis chapter 30. We're going to be looking starting in verse 25. Now, a quick catch, catching you up. After Jacob gets saved, he ends up at Uncle Laban's house. Uncle Laban, who uh, after 14 years, 4 wives and 11 children... Jacob learns a few things because Jacob starts out a deceiver, a schemer in his life, but Laban is much more so. Laban is the consummate con artist. And Jacob begins to discover that and several things now have happened between Jacob and Laban. Jacob has now been working for him, as I said, 14 years so that he could have two wives and he ended up with two wives who then each gave their maids to him so he had four wives and 11 kids and it was a big mess and that was the last chapter and you can, we're going to have tapes available for that later. But starting at verse 25 of Genesis 30, Jacob at the end of this 14 year process of working for his wife Rachel and his other wife Leah that he didn't really want in the first place. Verse 25, it says, Now it came about when Rachel had born Joseph that Jacob said to Laban, Send me away that I may go to to my own place and to my own country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you, and let me depart. For you yourself know my service which I have rendered you. But Laban said to him, and listen to this, If now it pleases you, stay with me. I have divined that the Lord has blessed me on your account. Which sounds awful high and mighty and, and polluting, and here's Laban saying, I've come to understand something of a spiritual nature. That the Lord has blessed me on account of you. He hasn't divined anything. He just has more flocks. He just has more stuff. And he sees that as long as Jacob is on the property, the property prospers. Things are better for Laban. And so he comes to Jacob and says, you know, I want you to stay. Because your being here is good for me. It's profitable for me. The Lord has blessed me, and three words here at the end of that verse, on your account. Folks, there's an important truth to understand here. And that is that the Labans of the world are watching you. The Labans of the world have their eyes clearly fixed on you, and they see what's going on in your life, and they know whether they claim to be a believer or not, they know if the Lord is with you or if He isn't. People know. They see these things. I want to talk this morning about this process of salvation and what we are called to. And I'm going to give you about three things to jot down. The first one is, listen to this, you are called to be a blessing. You are called to be a blessing. Not to enter into this place called salvation, sit back and just enjoy yourself. You're called to be a blessing. Once saved, that salvation in your life should bless other people around you. You are called to be a blessing. People connected to the Lord are not only blessed, they are a blessing. Jesus said in John 15, 16, and I love this, You did not choose me, but I chose you. 
And I appointed you, the word is literally ordained, I ordained you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, He may give you. Now people occasionally ask me, especially standing up in a barn, wearing blue jeans, trying to preach the word, they say, have you ever been ordained? Are you an ordained pastor? And when did this happen and what are your credentials and we need to know about that? Well, I can tell you my ordination. But I'm much more interested in telling you about my calling. You see, my ordination, which is somewhat of a man-made thing in churches today, my ordination did happen. I was raised in the Mishmiho Church of Christ in Southern California. And in that church, when it was time for me to graduate and go on into ministry, I needed a piece of paper that said I was an ordained minister so I could get a tax break. So the elders got with me and we sat down, we wrote it out, and they signed it, and we prayed, and I was ordained, and it was, it was really an amazing ceremony. <laughs> Here's your piece of paper, and I was like, yes, great. That was nothing compared to the process of my calling, which is a longer story that I'm going to go into this morning, but I was 16 years old out on the back of a hill at a Christian camp wondering what was going to happen with my life, very confused about living two ways, living for the church because my dad was an elder and that was what we did. We went to church all the time, but living at school and with my friends a totally different life and then trying to fool people at church that I was one way and fool my other friends that I was another way. And as I sat there on the back of this hill late one night, far after curfew, I began to just ask God, what do you want? Because I don't know what to do here. And what became very clear to me was it's one way or the other. You either follow me wholeheartedly with your entire life or you don't follow me at all. But that's what I'm calling you to. And it was that night that I felt a call to ministry. Now that, in my life, has dramatic impact. It's an anchor point for me. It's a calling. But listen to me and hear me on this. There is not a believer in Christ who has not received a calling. An ordination, if you will. It's not just pastors who are ordained. The call is not exclusive. To certain individuals who get picked out of the crowd to stand up and talk about Jesus on a Sunday morning. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4, he said, verse 1, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He says there's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. If you are a believer in Jesus, you have been called. You are ordained to ministry. And no piece of paper makes a difference on that. That comes from the Lord to you, His servant. And as a called person, what does that mean? What did you ordain me for, Lord? What am I supposed to do for you? What do you want me to do? And the answer is simple. Bear fruit. Be a blessing. Touch and change lives around you. Walk in a manner, Paul said, worthy of your calling. Jesus said, you didn't choose me, but I chose and ordained you. I appointed you. You have a role in this world. You have a reason that you're here. And it's not just to sit back and hope that by slowing down you can lose weight. As we talked about before. It's to move forward. To get busy about the process of working out your salvation. Paul said in Colossians 3.17, a familiar verse, Whatever you do, in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him 
to God the Father. If you're in Christ, you are, or, you are already ordained. And let me just say this to all of our graduates who will be talking to you in just a minute. Sophia, Jesse, Ashley, Chelsea, Joel, Katie, Jennifer, all of you guys, listen to me. You have a calling. You have been ordained to ministry. I thought I was going to be an architect. Well, I was looking at UPS. <laughs> what do you mean I have a calling? You have a calling. The way you live your life, God has called you. He has appointed you. He has ordained you. In whatever you do, do it all in the name of the Lord. Folks, our jobs, our paychecks are irrelevant to our calling. Our calling is what God wants us to do in this world. And you are called to be a blessing. So the Lathans of the world are watching. He sees Jacob and he says, Man, God blessed me because of you on your account. Now understand something about the Lathans. They watch you positively and they watch you negatively. Positively speaking, they're watching because they're honestly interested in why your life is so blessed. And why it is that the blessing in your life tends to overflow on them, and they see that and want it. It's why many of us became Christians in the first place. We saw it in other believers and went, wow, that's kind of cool. I could use a little bit of that. Give me some. That's the positive side, but the Labans also will watch for the negative side. They're watching because they're looking to take advantage of you and your blessing. And Jesus told us, you know, sometimes the people of the world are more wise than you are. Sometimes the people of the world are a little sharper, a little quicker on the uptake than, than we are as people of faith. Jesus says be wise, be smart, even be shrewd in how you live out your life as the Labans come to you seeking a blessing. Now watch what happens, verse 28. Laban continues. He says, name me your wages and I will give it. He wants to keep him there. I'll pay you. What, tell me what you want so that I can keep you on my land here. But Jacob said, verse 29, you yourself know how I served you and how your cattle have fared with me. For you have had little. You had little before I came and it has increased to a multitude and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now, when shall I provide for my own household? So he said, what shall I give you? And Jacob replied, you shall not give me anything. If you will do this one thing for me, I will again pasture and keep your flock. Let me pass through your entire flock today, removing from there every speckled and spotted sheep and every black one among the lambs and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and such shall be my wages." So my honesty will answer for me later. When you come concerning my wages, everyone that is not speckled or spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if they're found with me, will be considered stolen. And Laban said, Good. Let it be according to your word. Now you need to understand, in the Middle East even today, the speckled goats and lambs, the spotted sheep, the black sheep, are still considered the lesser of the flocks. They're not quite as good as the pure white sheep or the pure white goats. And according to Mendel's law of genetics, there are certain traits that are genetically dominant and some that are recessive. You may remember studying that in school, dominant versus recessive traits. And in this case, the solid color sheep should be dominant. You should have more of the solid sheep. So it's interesting that Jacob is doing something very odd. He's setting himself up. He's saying, look, you keep the best of the sheep, but as payment for me to stay and pasture your sheep a little longer, let me just pick the speckled ones, a few of the black ones and the spotted ones, and they'll be my wages. 
Alright, great idea. Laban's thinking this is good. I have the dominant sheep. Jacob gets the losers. This will work for me. But watch what happens. Laban does something to make sure he comes out ahead. Verse 35. So he, talking about Laban, removed on that day the striped and spotted male goats and all the speckled and spotted female goats, every one with white in it and all the black ones among the sheep, and gave them into the care of his sons. And he put a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob fed the rest of Laban's flock. What did Laban do? He pulled out all of the wages. He pulled out the speckled, spotted, and black sheep. He got them out, gave them to his sons, and go, quick, three days, go. And then when Jacob comes along to pasture the sheep and begins looking for the black and speckled and spotted, there aren't any. Laban's sitting back going, I bested him again. He got stuck with Leah, we guys, and now he's stuck with no sheep. This Jacob, this believer, he's not very shrewd. He's not very intelligent. Listen, folks, second thing to note, you're not only called to be a blessing, but you are called against the odds. The Christian life, the life of faith, is a, is a life that is a calling against the odds. It shouldn't work. It shouldn't work to trust the way you are called to trust. It shouldn't work to believe the way you're called to believe. Your business should not expand when you're trusting the Lord with it, instead of being shrewd and sharp and, and doing all the, you know, un... Some good things, some good, you know what I'm talking about. The things that people do in business that they shouldn't be doing, the shady things. Yeah, Christian businessmen in the world today, that's a hard place to be. Because there are all kinds of things you can do to grow your business, but the Lord would say, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Dang, you are called against the odds. We are called against the odds to a hard place, a place that is not as easy as just sitting back in the world. But watch what happens in this classic, classic story. 37. Then Jacob took fresh rods of poplar and almond and plane trees, and he peeled white stripes in them, exposing the white which was in the rods. He set the rods which he had peeled in front of the flocks in the gutters, even in the watering troughs where the flocks came to drink, and they mated when they came to drink. So the flocks mated by the rods, and the flocks brought forth stripes speckled and spotted. Do you get what's happening here? He's taking little sticks from these trees and he's stripping them and he's putting them in the water and as the flocks are coming up to drink and they mate, the babies that they have are coming out spotted and speckled and black. Weird. Read on. Verse 40. So Jacob separated the lambs and he made the flocks face toward the stripe and all the black in the flock of Laban and he put his own herds apart and he did not put them with Laban's flock. So what's happening is every time he has a little speckled or spotted or black lamb come out, he takes them and sets them aside over here. And he starts to tend them by themselves and then he continues to tend Laban's flock. And he's stripping these little pieces, these sticks, and putting them in front of the flock, and they mate, and they keep having these speckled, spotted, and black sheep. And he takes them and he puts them over here. And we read the story and go, this is just weird. This, it's, it's bizarre how this is happening. Verse 41. Moreover, whenever the stronger of the flock were mating, Jacob would place the rods in the sight of the flock in the gutters so that they might mate by the rods. But when the flock was feeble, he did not put them in. So the feebler were Laban's and the stronger were Jacob's. So the man became exceedingly prosperous and had large flocks and female and male servants and camels and donkeys. Now, you read the story and go, wow, Jacob knows something about sticks. 
<laughs> that I never knew before. Is this how you rear sheep? I mean, you strip these six and put them in, and this is going to cause it. Is prenatal suggestion possible? If so, then if you're pregnant, ladies, I would suggest you start reading the great works of the rest of the Western world, and you might come up with an intelligent child at birth. Or if you want a globally astute child, watch a lot of Fox News, prenatal suggestions. You've heard the old wives' tales. People say if you eat a certain food at a certain time of the month, then you're going to have a certain kind of kid. Or if you do something, if you stand on your head at the right time, then maybe your child will be an acrobat. I don't know. It's very strange. How people will not have faith in God who is so obvious, but they'll put their faith in things like prenatal suggestion. Do this and you'll receive this kind of child. Well, that's not what's going on here. It's not what's happening here at all. Now, critics of the Bible would point out that the very notion of prenatal suggestion is archaic, so the Bible must be archaic. They'd read this story and go, that's ridiculous. Come on. We know that doesn't work in genetics. You can't take a stick and put it in front of a sheep and expect to get a certain kind of lamb out of it. It doesn't work. Well, maybe not for the unbelieving world. But you are called against the odds. And Jacob knew one thing clearly. He understood something that you wouldn't even know unless you tripped on into the next chapter. Jacob knew that this was God's call. That this whole thing was God's idea. Look at chapter 31, just at verse 5. In verse 5, Jacob's talking to his wives, and he says, I see your father's attitude that he is not friendly toward me as formerly, but the God of my father has been with me. Jacob's working out a little bit here. Look at verse 7. Yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. However, God did not allow him to hurt me. You see, you are called against the odds. Look down at verse 10. And here we find out what Jacob knew that Laban didn't know, that we didn't know until we got here. And it came about, he's talking, at the time when the flock were mating, that I lifted up my eyes and I saw in a dream. And behold, the male goats which were mating were striped, speckled, and mottled. And then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob... And I said, here I am. And he said, lift up now your eyes and see that all the male goats which are mating are striped, speckled, and mottled. Why? For I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you. What's the point? God, God knows what's going on. He says, Jacob, here's what I want you to do. Take care of the sheep and I will take care of you. And so I believe what's happening in chapter 30 is that Jacob's just doing exactly what God said. Take the sticks, strip them down, put them in the water. Take the sticks, strip them down, put them in front of the mating sheep and goats. And I will bless you. And it still doesn't make sense to me. Why is it that God goes about things this way? What's the deal with the crazy exercise? Why not just say, hey Jacob, don't worry, I'll take care of it. And all of a sudden speckled, spotted, and black sheep are being born. Why does Jacob have to do this business of the sticks? Because God is teaching him to work out his salvation. God's saying, Jacob, I want you engaged in the process. Oh, sure, I could do it all for you. But now that you're saved, now that you're walking with me, man, I want to develop your faith. So, Jacob, I'm telling you, if you will do this, this will be the result. So Jacob goes, all right, strip, 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 puts him down there, and boom, gets the result. And his faith gets stronger. He's working out his salvation, folks. We're watching Jacob move forward in this process. 
He's involved. He's engaged. He gets to be a part of it. It's not a sitting back thing, watching God do things and go, oh, well, it's great. It's being involved. We have New Testament examples of it so many times. I'll give you two. In Matthew chapter 9, there's a story of a blind man. A man who's been blind since his birth. No, I'm sorry, that's John 9. Let me tell you what's in Matthew 9 first. There were a couple of blind men. They were following Jesus and they were crying out to him, Have mercy on us, son of David. This is Matthew 9, 27. And in verse 28 it says, When he entered the house, the blind men came up to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? First question out of Jesus' mouth when they want to be healed of their blindness. Do you believe that I can do this? And how do they respond? They said to him, Yes, Lord. He touched their eyes saying, It shall be done to you according to your faith. Boom, and their eyes were open and they could see. Immediately. Wonderfully. Wow. But Jesus didn't always heal that way. There's another instance with a Roman centurion where the centurion says, I've got a sick servant, can you heal him? And Jesus says, yeah, I'll come with you. And he says, no, no, just say the word and he'll be healed. And Jesus goes, you've got great faith, it's done. And in that moment, the servant who Jesus never saw touched anything was healed. But then we have instances like in John chapter 9. John chapter 9 tells us a story, and I will just tell it to you, you can read it later about a man who was born blind, had never seen a day in his entire life. Jesus comes up to the man, and he spits in the dirt. I loved this story when I was a kid, because it was just so gross. He spits in the dirt, and he mixes up some mud out of the spittle in the dirt, and takes it, and he begins to wipe it on the man's eyes. And then he says to the man, Now, I want you to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. Go take a little trip. You're going to have to stumble over there, get someone to help you, and wash your eyes out. So the man, you know, what else is he going to do? He's got to get this muck off of his eyes. So he heads over to the pool of Siloam, washes out his eyes, and when it's done, then he can see. Why? Why didn't Jesus just touch his eyes like he did the two blind men in the, in the Matthew story? Or why didn't he just speak the word like he did for the Roman centurion? Because he's helping the blind man work out his salvation. He's growing his faith. He's giving him strength and muscle. In the first instance, the two men had great faith. In the second, Jesus took the time needed to engage the blind man's faith. By sending the blind man on a journey to a washing. And my friends, that's working out salvation. And it always works best against the odds. God has called you. He has called me against the odds. Why don't you start having a church in a barn against the odds? Why don't you go driving around on North Whitby, Rick, and just see if you can find somewhere, because I want you to plant a church there against the odds. Oh, there's a family that lives there, and they're willing to talk to you about maybe having a Bible study in their house. Give them a call. So I call Rod and Barb against the odds. Do you know how weird it was sitting in the Gilmore's living room the first time we met them, having never met them before in our lives? It was just strange. We sat down together and just looked at each other. I'm Rick. Nice to meet you. I'm not on drugs. <laughs> against the odds. Against the odds. That is how God has called us. By the way, <laughs> as God's going about consecrating the con artist and sanctifying the schemer, 
and, and replacing Jacob's heart with a new heart. While God's working out his salvation and engaging Jacob in the process, something else very interesting caught my eye in this story. Isn't it interesting that God chose the speckled and the spotted and the black sheep for Jacob's fly? He loves to work out in the lives of the black sheep. In the lives of the people with spots and speckles and wrinkles and problems, that's where God wants to be at work. Because a life that's changed like that, wow, that life is a life called to be a blessing. That life is a life that is called to a workout. And that's the third thing to write down. You're called to a workout. This is the process. If you want to be a follower of Jesus Christ, I'm not going to fool you and say, Oh, it's all easy and hymns and it's wonderful. Because it's not. It is the most fantastic, joyful, delightful thing you will ever experience, could ever possibly experience, but it's hard. And it stresses you, and it strains you, and it grows your spiritual muscle. Because that's what God wants to do. The more intense the workout, by the way, the greater the strength in the Lord. Right now, today, this morning, our missionaries, Phil and Jane, were supposed to be here. From Costa Rica. And they were going to talk to us about what's going on down there and share with us. Jane has been given six months because of the cancer that's in her liver. She's saying right now that apart from a miracle, what the doctors are saying is that she has six to twelve months and anything they do will only prolong her life for a short time. And so in the most recent email, I believe I sent it out to everybody, the most recent email she said, we need a miracle. We need to pray for a miracle. I, I have one more thing to say here, but I want to stop and pray for a miracle. Let's do that right now. Father, we pray for Jane in this moment. Lord, we see no way around this from our human perspective, but you are the great physician and the healer, and we pray for absolute healing for Jane. We pray, Father, that your will will be worked out in her life. When we see, Father, through both Phil and Jane, the incredible work out of a salvation that they have had so far in their lives and continue to have. And we trust you, Lord, and believe that if it is your will, Jane can instantaneously be healed. And we know there are others in, in the body of Christ who are praying right now, who are, who are seeking you for her. And we join them when we cry out for Jane Jones. Father, heal her. Take all of her insides in your hands and work your spirit through her and remove the cancer as, as a glory to your name. And Father, with, with Phil and Jane both, give them the strength to be resigned to your will, whatever it may be. We pray for them in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me... He must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's a workout. That's what you're called to. That's Luke 9.23. And line by line, chapter by chapter, precept by precept, story by story in the Bible is full of people like Jacob. People who are black sheep, speckled, spotted, messed up. Jacob was a messed up guy. But people in whom God is at work and people for whom God has called to the work, the work of his salvation. And Paul says in Philippians 1.6, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And in Philippians 2.12 again, Paul said, So then, my beloved, 
Just as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, works out your salvation with fear and with trembling. Why? Because it's God who's at work within you to will and to work for His good pleasure. So practice prayer, study the Scriptures, develop discipline, labor in love, and gain in so doing, you will become strong in the Lord in spite of spots and speckles.